Word Radio On Demand, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Streaming live at wordradio.com. Let me welcome to the program Dr. Philip Atiba Solomon. Dr. Solomon is the Carl Hovland Professor of African-American Studies and Professor of Psychology at Yale University. He received his A.B. from Harvard and Ph.D. in Psychology from Stanford. He quickly became a national leader in the science of racial bias by pioneering scientific experiments that exposed how our minds learn to associate blackness and crime implicitly, often with deadly consequences. This research led Dr. Solomon to co-found the Center for Policing Equity. Everybody join me in welcoming Dr. Philip Atiba Solomon to Evening Words. How you doing, Doc? How you doing, man? I am doing okay. Glad to be on with you. Thank you so much uh, for joining the program. Good, sir. I know for a fact how busy you are. I know how busy you are, so I appreciate you taking some time out uh, to, to talk with us here. I, I, I read your bio, but I wonder if we could start by, by you just kind of sharing folks the kind of work that you do. I mean, the Center for Policing Equity has been at the forefront of some of the more most important issues around policing. And obviously, policing is something that's really important to the city of Philadelphia and to the listeners of WRD. But but maybe you want to add some nuance, brother, to the great work that you do. Well, I, I appreciate it. Um, you know, the two worst things you could be in my house uh, household as the three worst were a bragger, a liar or a thief. And you asked me to be one of those three. So I'm, I'm a politely decline. But I, I will frame the conversation right now mm. um, as an old one uh, for people familiar with the long struggle towards black liberation, which is this. We both have to deliver better systems for black folks catching uh, hell right now. Uh, meaning that tomorrow we got to have something better than we got today because literally there are folks dying from it. Mm. And at the same time, we got to be able to speak the truth that the systems were not set up to save our lives, that oftentimes the systems were set up to um, diminish, um, uh, to reduce or even to eliminate our lives. Mm. So we need to have brand new systems. I'm not a, a person who only says burn it down. But I, I have to have uh, great respect for the folks who were saying that um, from slavery to the present mm-hmm. about the systems that were set up to to harm black uh, individuals and black communities. Policing is exactly at that crossroads. Mm-hmm. We at once have to say, why on earth are we sending law enforcement when someone is is uh, reporting they might commit suicide? You want to mm-hmm. send a badge and a gun to someone who's got a gun to their head? That don't make no kind of sense. And by the way, law enforcement agrees. We should get law enforcement out of those pieces of business. Mm-hmm. And yet. While we've got law enforcement, and I'm, you know, I'm not Nostradamus, but my guess is we're gonna have it for at least another couple of week or two. <laughs> we're gonna need to have better systems in place and accountability for those systems um, at the same time. So that creative tension between uh, sort of the radical um, black imaginary of a future and the radical black institutionalist approach. Frequently, people uh, put on uh, different color shirts and they feel like those are different teams. Mm. But in the history of this country and most of the history of the globe, the most radical progress that is not brought about by bloodshed happens when both a radical future and a radical present are in creative conflict with each other. That's what I want people to understand about what we got to do about policing right now. Thank you for that breakdown, Dr. Solomon. So I, I, I a couple of follow up questions. It's, it's, so there there are some folks and I know that there's an entire philosophical track to this conversation about being able to imagine what abolition looks like. And I and I do want to get to that building piece to it as well, because it's not just about destroying. But for mm-hmm. folks who who can't imagine what happens if you abolish the police as we know it or if you 
abolish the criminal justice system as we know it. How, how can we see their imagination with, with, with what we might be able to do if we were to take that kind of radical approach to things that have been entrenched in terms of policing and criminal justice in our society for centuries? Sure. Let me, let me, uh, flip the script on you and I'm going to just talk about, um, what law enforcement has been saying to me for the last 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. Okay. So police chiefs, line officers, union presidents have been saying to me, um, we keep getting sent into poor neighborhoods, um, dealing with the crime of being poor Mm. and then getting yelled at like it's our fault when we can't solve poverty. We keep getting sent to people who are struggling with mental illness. Mm. Um, it goes badly, and then they're upset with the cops. Like we were the ones who deinstitutionalized um, mental health hospitals and provided for the eradication of public mental health resources. Right. We're get, we get sent to the places where folks don't have houses, where they've got substance disorders. We're sent into the schools where teachers are, are not equipped, don't have the resources to protect themselves and to protect the attention of the folks who are, who are trying to focus on learning. Many of them are up late at night because of the, the contours of their neighborhoods, didn't get enough to eat at home. Mm. So cops are constantly sent into areas where we have neglected communities for generations. That's right. And then we blame them for the things they get wrong when they get, when they get set up. Mm-hmm. So every one of the, the police chiefs that I've spoken to, um, who I think is, is, uh, worth anything in their jobs has said, get us out of the situations where we can't be trained, um, where we don't come with solutions. We just come, um, with detention and deterrence. Mm. Get us out of those situations and let us focus on the things that we can we can train for, which is immediate crisis response to violence. Mm. When you get that in a large number of jurisdictions across the country, not all, but a large number, we're talking about 80, 90, 95, 96, 97% wow. of their work is having nothing to do with violence. Wow. Nothing to do with violence. Wow. Right? Um, I'm not saying that that means that 97% of it should be gone, but how small could we shrink law enforcement if we invested upstream so the communities didn't have those sets of crises in the same kind of way? By the way, that happens in um, uh, in our European uh, mm-hmm. uh, 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 countries that are allies in some parts of Southeast Asia. That happens when you're focusing on getting rid of inequality. Mm. But also if we had – sets of crisis responders that weren't just badges and guns. Imagine radical notion that when someone was in a mental health crisis, we sent someone who had therapeutic skills. Right. If someone starts struggling with a substance disorder, we sent a, a, a physical health responder. And that God forbid someone is suffering from being unhoused, we send someone who can move them indoors. Mm. These are not radical solutions. They're what law enforcement's been calling for for decades, saying stop blaming us when y'all don't really want to solve these problems. You just want to make them disappear. Mm. And that's the beginnings of what it means to shrink how much we solve, we address these problems with systems of punishment and to grow how much we're responding to them with systems of care, both before the crisis happens and at the time of the crisis. That, I mean, forget about, if you want to call that uh, an approach to abolition, that's what Du Bois, Du Bois would agree. Right. Um, but if you want to just call that a common sense approach <laughs> right. to a problem that's, we can all see, that's right. right? I hate to do this to the, the most radical of activists, but you agree with the cops. <laughs> Right? <laughs> don't and wait. Don't say, party, don't, don't say that too loud. Bro. Don't say yeah, that you, too loud. And you're late to the party. Cops been saying this for 20, 30 years. Welcome to the show. So, but so, so I, I, I'm assuming that that would go with some radical redistribution of the budgeting for police departments, right? Because 
you know, in many of the largest cities uh, in, in this uh, country, the police budget is one of the biggest line items on 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 the municipal uh, 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 budget sheet. And so, are you suggesting that 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 uh, police unions and and the political forces behind the police are willing to break bread with those budgets in order to redistribute those resources into the services and into the personnel who can actually address this wider range of things that the police are addressing that they're ill-equipped to address? Um, it is rare for law enforcement to say, hey, we need to get us out of here. And by the way, take the money uh, back that you gave it to deal with it. They want out of it, but they want to keep the money in part because right now they're in a crisis of morale and recruitment. Mm-hmm. Not surprising. Post-2020, not a lot of folks lining up to be a cop. And the ones who are, are not the most qualified. Mm. Um, they also see how much they're spread thin in terms of all the things that we neglect and we ask law enforcement to do. And they're like, yeah, I can't, I can't get, give up any of this budget. But you're not wrong that the eventual outcome of this would be let's invest in the things that are care and preventative mm-hmm. and invest less in punishment um, and responsiveness, right? But I think the question has to be understood a little bit more broadly because you cannot take money out of a law enforcement budget today, put that money into crisis response for mental health, and expect that the system is going to be stood up immediately, that you're going to see the return on investment. That's just a mess. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, frequently, what it looks like you got to do is stand up the prevention and the alternative to police crisis response, get a gauge for how much that lightens the load on law enforcement as crisis response, Mm -hmm. as police as crisis response, and then adjust from there. And the problem is that means you got to have more money before you end up saving money which is where the nonprofit space frequently comes in. Right. So we show up and we try and facilitate a thing. Um, uh, you know, the, our, our folks, the, the million experiments folks uh, show up and they're, they're observing these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, live free shows up and does the, some violence interruption stuff. Um, uh, the nonprofits in this space are standing up things that municipal budgets aren't equipped to do, especially when municipal leaders often lack the vision or lack the courage to step out on principle and say the way to respond to someone who's unhoused is not to threaten them with being locked up because they're not unhoused because they were worried there wouldn't be a punishment for it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We have a new mayoral administration here in the city of Philadelphia that has talked a bit about bringing back some version of stop and frisk. Uh, has changed their, the, the, the city's policy approach to the Kensington neighborhood, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but I'll just say for our listeners, you know, Kensington is one of the most challenged neighborhoods in the city of Philadelphia. Some folks have referred to it as an open air drug market, but it has become a flashpoint for, for the opioid crisis <laughs> in the country and certainly in the city of Philadelphia. They've, they're shifting away from a, I guess you would call it a harm reduction approach, shifting back to a more policing approach. If, if the mayor of Philadelphia, came to you for a consultation on those things, what kind of things would you say to a mayor who's thinking about bringing back some version of stop and frisk or who's thinking about shifting away from a kind of harm reduction into a more police-oriented strategy around a neighborhood like Kensington? So uh, the first question I would have on the really real is why? (laughs) What problem are you solving Mm. by going back to punishment? And if the answer was... Um, I'm solving the problem of folks being in immediate crisis. I'd be like, what evidence do you have that this thing will work? Because having done the analyses, like I'm a, I'm a data nerd, right? Like nerdy nerd. Um, uh, that's like why I, we like, love I'm you, Doc. Done. That's why we need you in these conversations because the, the data doesn't always, it's not always there and we need the data. Right. So, so it, the data are useful. 
I need the data because it's it's my breath. Like when I, I'm about like when I'm done watching a Marvel movie, I go watch Star Wars. I'm I'm, I'm a big nerd. <laughs> um, but I want to be clear: we didn't we didn't use the data. We didn't bother to wait for the data when we were deciding the crack. Uh, uh, cocaine should be pu- punished at a hundred times uh, powder cocaine, mm. right? When we decided mm. that we weren't going to allow folks in Florida to vote, even after there was a popular re- uh, referendum um, led by Desmond Mead um, to make sure that folks with uh, former felony convictions could vote, we didn't create a system that was going to re-enfranchise people, make sure that they were able to participate in their community as uh, functional citizens. Mm. We didn't uh, use or wait for the data. So I am I am sympathetic to communities that say, I don't want to have to wait for data to get justice. Mm. We need the data. It's useful. But in the meantime, you talking about going backwards. We actually have data on what going to stop question and frisk does. Mm-hmm. There is a short term um, reduction in, uh, you know, petty crimes, low level crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a long term like I'm talking generational damage on public trust. Wow. And. Uh, the problem with public trust, and I want to be clear, the goal here is not me saying communities just need to trust law enforcement. The goal here is that we need to have public servants worthy of community trust in the most vulnerable communities. But when you don't have it, what happens is you ain't going to call when something bad happens. Mm-hmm. You know who knows that before the cops know that? The people who are doing things you would otherwise want to call about. That's right. If I am in Kensington, right, um, and I'm looking – to uh, get over and get my come, come up off of somebody's purse, mm-hmm. right? And I know I live in a neighborhood, ain't nobody going to call the cops. We don't trust them. That's not what we do. That's not how we it's managed here. Mm. If they got someone bigger with a bigger gun who gets a drop on me, then that's just how life is going to go down. But I'm going to get that purse. That's how situations become vigilante, mm. right? And so if we move to a punitive system that says because you live here, not because you did something, because you live here, you are subject to increased state surveillance, increased risk of state violence, right, and a decreased protection of your constitutional rights, which is what stop, question, and frisk in many cities has meant. Mm-hmm. Then what we're saying is we don't care that generationally it means you won't be able to trust the system, which means you will disengage in the, the act of being a citizen. Mm. What I would say to the Park administration or anybody who asked me is if what you think you're solving for is actual public safety, I want to be clear that the tactics you are using are a worse threat to participation in voting and democracy than gerrymandering and moving the polling places. Wow. If, however, you want to be honest – and I don't – by the way – I'm not trying to say that Mayor Parker is not being honest. Right. But for most people, if they want to be honest, they want to say, yeah, politically – uh, violent crime is up and my donors feel like I need to do something about it. That's right. And this looks like the thing I can do. This will be a visible reaction to it and they won't have to see the criminals, right? And I put cr- criminals in quotes. Mm-hmm. The, the criminals for a couple of months, it will be a political winner for me. What I might say is, I know it's hard to imagine, mm-hmm. but there are funders and there are state reps and there are federal folks who would be incredibly supportive of a person with enough bravery mm-hmm. to come forward and say, I can put a Band-Aid on a chest wound, or we can come together as a community, and instead of acting like we're tough people, we can actually build communities strong enough to deal with this at the root. Because mm. there is no community that has a problem with violent crime when everyone has enough. Doesn't happen. We got problems with white collar crime. People don't feel don't feel like um, one yacht is enough, so I'm gonna rob somebody's pension. That's a thing, <laughs> right? Right? But they usually don't. They usually usually 
don't stab people for it. That's right. Right? So if you wanted to have points not just for the next election, but points for a legacy, you would have the courage to say none of these policing responses deal with the root cause. You can't police poverty. You cannot police poverty. You can't police poverty. I mean, you, we do it. We do it all the time. But policing doesn't solve poverty. Got it. Got it. So are we are you are you talking about universal basic income? I mean, what 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 are what, what are some of the what are the, some of the the solutions that go along with that more holistic community centered approach to crime and substance abuse? So I, I wish that the answer was here's my three point plan. Right. Go put it into effect. Right. right. Um, I need to remind folks that we spent one hundred and fifteen billion dollars. That's billion with a B. Billion dollars on policing in this country wow. every year. One hundred and fifteen wow. billion dollars. Wow. So for folks who imagine, I mean, I, I, I hate to say, it, since twenty twenty, a lot of folks who all of a sudden became expert about policing. You don't hear a lot from them anymore, <laughs> right? But they got real life from twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty two. There were a lot. There of were. Folks, there were. There were. Right. Most of them, by the way, lived in Brooklyn, and you had never heard of them ever before having to do police. But they became experts. That's right. Um, they had a complexion and a hairstyle when they were teens. I could talk about, but I'm, whatever. This might be family program, so let me not. This is a family show. It is. Um, it this is. is a family show. Let me let me not talk about um folks. But you know what? Anyway, um, uh, but they were trying to say it's easy, and anybody who says it's complicated, they just try to say. Really? $115 billion? You don't think there's a complicated set of infrastructures on that? Mm. It is at least as complex as the healthcare or education systems in this country. Wow. Especially because policing is the number one or number two budget item in every municipality across this country, along with education. Yep. It's incredibly complex. So there isn't a one-size-fits-all, here's what you do. But here are a couple of, of things that are straightforward. In some forthcoming research I've got coming out with uh, Ayo Lanianu, who's a wonderful, brilliant junior faculty member up at University of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it looks like in, in, in the cities we were able to look at, um, in the states that expanded Medicaid uh, under Obamacare, we see a, 50, a 12 to 15 percent reduction in the percentage of time law enforcement is spending with folks with serious mental illness. Wow. If you've got a safety net, you don't arrest them. Wow. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Okay. That's a stunning data point, but go ahead, brother. That's stunning. Um, uh, in, in Denver or in Austin, where they have stood up, not co-response, not just people coming along with law enforcement, but an entirely separate entity to deal with folks with mental, uh, uh, illness, right? I believe, and forgive me if I got the number slightly off, but mm-hmm. I believe in the first eight months of the program in Austin, 82% of the calls that went to the non-police responders had no police who showed up at the incident. And they saved themselves about $1.6 million in the budget by having folks who were trained to be mental health responders who often get paid less than folks who go to law enforcement, which is its own problem. (laughs) Um, But the folks who had mental health response training um, go and save the city $1.6 million. And in Denver, when they did a similar sort of thing, I don't know what the savings was, but I'll Mm -hmm. tell you, they had a huge increase in calls to 911. And the reason that's important to know, I think think it was like six times greater. Um, uh, But whatever it was... That means there's a huge under-resourced mental health problem in Denver, and folks don't feel like they've got another place to go, but they weren't calling because they sure knew the police were not the right answer. Wow. These are the kinds of things you can do when the problem is actually community safety, and the problem is not who needs more punishment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dr. Solomon. 
You've been listening to Word Radio On Demand. Listen live at 96.1 FM, 900 AM, and online at wordradio.com.